You're listening to the Fooled by the Root podcast. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Heidi Marble. This is the second episode with Mira Ryben. If you have not listened to the first, I would highly recommend it. These episodes are best paired together. If you did listen to the first episode, you know that Mira Ryben is an activist. She has been for decades. She is a birth mom who relinquished her daughter during the baby scoop era. She has written two incredible books and written 200 articles regarding the change that needs to occur in adoption. She wanted to come back to Pulled by the Root and really talk about the solutions. This episode focuses on that. And as usual, Mira comes with her fire, with her passion, with her pain, and also with her hope and her extreme breadth of knowledge. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Marble. I am so excited for our follow-up episode with the amazing Mira Ryben. You've already heard her introduction if you've listened to the first episode. This is just going to be a continuation of our conversation. I am just so happy and honored to be here with Mira and to listen to what she has to say about additional problems concerning adoption and also some of those solutions that she feels are applicable. So without further ado, I'm so happy you're here, Mira. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, I could sit here and talk to you every day because uh, everything that you have to say, I'm like, how can I argue with any of this? I can't. It's it it just makes so much sense, and I think it's really important. You spent nearly a lifetime educating yourself on all of this. And I think it's a wonderful resource for our audience to be able to hear from someone like you who has has metabolized this for so long. Thank you. I, you know, I, I, I think one of the saddest things is that um, we adoption activists seem to constantly be singing to the choir and that seems to be all that's listening to us. And and Mm -hmm. that's my biggest regret. I mean, I've devoted my entire adult life to this work and I'm proud of seeing some baby steps, but I also see so much backtracking and, and so much repetition of the myths that, um, Adoption is um, a win-win, and adoption provides a better life, and and adoption um, should be applauded and promoted, and it is. It is promoted and applauded um, and encouraged and even encouraged with our tax dollars, and um, so little being done in terms of preventing adoption, loss, and separation, and so little is being done, little to nothing is being done to encourage, promote, and support family preservation, keeping families together. And the why is very simple. I touched on this um, in our previous uh, session together, but I can't emphasize it enough. The why is money. There is money to be made in redistributing children from one family to another. And there's no money to be made in saving families and keeping them intact. And that's extremely heartbreakingly sad that we would rip families apart, tear them by the root, as you've so eloquently stated, um, and destroy their roots, basically, not just pull them up, but but totally destroy their roots. And and um, and to do all of this for money, it, it's it's so despicable is the only word that I can think of, and that is the motivation. I want to clarify two things that I said. Uh, one, I'm I, a misstatement that I said in the previous episode. I said that um, David Smolin, who's done such miraculous work and writings on uh, child trafficking, he had corrected me once on this, and I, darn it, I made the same mistake. <laughs> I said 
that he coined the phrase child laundering and he corrected me and said he didn't. I don't know who did, but he said he didn't coin the phrase, he popularized the phrase child laundering. But in any case, uh, David Smolin is a fabulous resource for anyone to look up and, and learn about all of this child trafficking, which literally all of adoption is because there's so much money involved in it. And um, uh, who was it? Adam Pertman said, you know, anytime there's money involved, watch out, there's problems, there's gonna be corruption. Um, money is corrupting. And we have not gotten the money out of adoption and we need to. Um, so I wanted to talk more, a little bit more about that and how money is so entangled in this and what we can do fairly easily to untangle some of it. Um, this new concept, relatively new concept of open adoption, um, which is touted as giving mothers power and control because they get to choose the parents. However, what it does is it, uh, in almost every state, it allows the prospective adopters to make direct payments called expenses to the birth mother. Judges approve of this in I think every state. I don't know of a state that doesn't allow it. It's called paying her like her medical expenses and such like that while she's pregnant. Well, there's such simple ways to get around that. If the mother is indigent, get her on Medicare or Medicaid or whatever state program she needs to get on. There's WIC programs for, for expectant mothers and mothers with new babies. Take advantage of every entitlement that's out there. Now, if there's still money needed, for legitimate expenses, not buying the mother a new car, which is done and some judges approve of it. Yeah, yeah. Some judges are approving outrageous, which is just baby buying and they're approving it. So if there are expenses above and beyond what entitlement programs can help the mother with, then what I've suggested in um, my book, The Stork Market, and in articles that I've written, what I suggest is a state pool where all the adoptive mothers, uh, adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents that are looking to adopt, in addition to whatever agency fees they're paying or attorney fees they're paying, they pay into a state pool for expenses for mothers that are, are considering relinquishing their babies. By doing it in a communal pool, you're, you're putting a, a safety net up. Instead of having these direct payments from the adoptive parents to the expectant mother, the, I keep forgetting to say perspective, from the prospective adoptive parents to the expectant mother. This a pool such as this and, and ending direct payments would protect both parties because we read all the time about adoption scams, mothers who are um, promising two or three different sets of prospective adopters. Yes, I'm pregnant and you can have my baby or women who are not even pregnant at all, just running a scam. So by pooling the money at a state level, you would stop that and protect the adoptive parents from being scammed. Um, needless to say, it would also protect the, 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 the expectant mothers from this feeling of, wow, she paid all my expenses. Now I kind of owe her this baby. And in some states, I see a horrified look on your face. It's going to get I more know. Well, it's going to get more horrifying. Hold on. In some states, mothers are actually being blackmailed and told, if you change your mind, you're going to have to repay all of that money. Okay. Mira, this, this feels criminal. It is. 
It is, but it's 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 criminally allowed. It it it's immoral. It's unethical. But unfortunately, it's legal in most states in this country to one degree or another. And um, these this is what we must do. Short of ending all adoption, um, we'll get into that later. My thoughts on that, which are considered totally insane and radical. But um, short of that, we must work on ending these unethical practices, these agencies are doing this and doing this and doing this, and they're not even getting a slap on the wrist. I wrote about one of these cases that took place in Alabama in 2015. The agency is still in existence. Nothing was done about it. They have um, one attorney representing both the birth mother and the adoptive mother. And the expectant mother believes that this attorney is representing her best interests, but it's not in any adoption because in every adoption, even if there's two separate attorneys, which there very seldom are, but even when there are two separate ones, they're both being paid by the prospective adopters. In any other legal arrangement, this would be a clear unadulterated violation of conflict of interest, and yet it's permissible in adoption. And they're taking advantage of somebody that's at her most vulnerable. And it's allowed, and and it has to stop. It has to stop. We can't keep um, endorsing this and supporting this and, and encouraging it. We can't allow our tax dollars to be used for this. It, it's just so immoral to do that. Um, the other thing I wanted to add to to what I said um, in the first episode, and then we'll get on to my more radical, insane ideas. Um, <laughs> I talked a lot about the um, how times have changed, and um, shame is no longer, you know, a tool to get women to to relinquish and now open adoption is, and how um, now we have more access to birth control and single parenthood is acceptable. But what I didn't talk about is the fact that there's fewer women that carry a pregnancy to term and are considering adoption because of all of this birth control and access to abortion in most states, and it's getting chipped away, as we know. But because all of these alternatives do exist today, um, there's fewer babies being placed. Fewer mothers are desperate enough to do that. And fewer mothers are willing to carry a baby for nine months and hand it over to strangers or even to somebody that they meet once or twice. In addition to all of that, which I already discussed previously, is the fact that I did mention the word demand, that it's a demand-driven industry. But the demand as the supply, and I hate to use that word, but adoptees are a commodity, and this is a supply and demand game. And as the supply is decreasing because of other options, the demand is increasing. Why is that? Why is the demand increasing? Well, it's certainly at least staying level. Infertility rates are staying level. Very little is being done to work on prevention of infertility. Many, many causes, not all, certainly not all, but many causes of infertility are preventable. And there's very little being done to educate women to stop delaying childbirth as long as they are um, and have been doing now for two generations with the belief that, oh, I can still have a baby at 40, but then they find out they can't. So, oh, well, I can always adopt. We're not doing enough to prevent infertility, which can be prevented. There are several causes of it. Like I said, not all, um, but um, contributing factors that could be environmental, um, obesity, certainly age, delaying childbearing can be worked on, improved, um, 
cigarette smoking. Um, I can't think of all of them now, but I personally advocate for um, uh, high school sex ed classes teaching a segment on preventing infertility and certainly making it loud and clear to high school age and college age women. No, you can't just keep putting it off forever. Yes, it's possible to have a baby over 35 and even at 40. Yes, it's possible. People do it. But your chances of having a baby, your first child, over 35 are decreased and your chances of having your first child over 40 are increased ever more greatly. And you may conceive, you may not carry through the pregnancy and the risk to the baby is greater as you age. And the risk of, of um, harm to the baby um, is greater as you age. And all of this needs to be um, People need to be educated instead of this very flippant attitude. Well, if I can't have one, I can always adopt. No, that's not the right attitude because adopting start, every single adoption starts with a trauma. You're tearing a family apart. Unless you're opting to adopt an older child out of state care. Um, that I see some reason to support, but even that, there's a lot of exploitation even there. Um, and I, I'm gonna leave that to others who have more expertise in that subject than I do, that aspect of adoption. But um, yeah, oh, so why is the demand increasing? Infertility is not slowing down at all. With all of our medical advances, and added to the pool of prospective adopters now are same-sex couples. So you have a huge increase in demand. Didn't think about that one, Mira. No, uh, most people don't. In truth, no one, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pink, blue, or purple, no one has a right to adopt. That just doesn't exist. Natural parents have a right to parent their child, but nobody has a right to parent someone else's child. That doesn't exist. So, um, yeah. Oh, so, Mira, can, can I interject and ask absolutely. a couple of questions? Sure. Okay, so, so confession here. Before I knew what I know, we actually suffered infertility and we were thinking about adopting. This is in my late twenties. And because I was in the fog and had the narrative built into my head that if we did adopt, we were saving a baby. Mira, honest to goodness, it never occurred to me that that wasn't an altruistic choice. Now I was able to have my son and all that went by the wayside. But, you know, I think a lot of people are being taken advantage here. It's, and adopted parents should be included in that because if I felt that way as an adopted person, an adopt, you know, potential adopters, I, I'm certain that they are thinking a similar thing because that is what we're being told. And so I think the truth is so shocking and upsetting that, and, and why don't people know the truth and why aren't they willing to listen? And and I think it, it's absolutely horrifying to me that I was so in the dark myself th that I wasn't able to see this. So I think it's really, really shocking. And I don't want people to think we're against anyone in particular, but we have to point to the truth. And it feels to me, Mira, that the agencies that make the money off this are taking advantage of the vulnerable parties on all sides of this. And I would just I would just love for you to speak about that because I think the level of denial is epic. <laughs> it's not just denial, it's entrenchment in the myths. And you're absolutely right. It's the agencies, the attorneys, all of the middlemen, all of the facilitators that are profiting from this exchange of babies. Um, it's it's a mega billion dollar industrial complex and they have powerful 
They spend tons and tons of money on PR. So don't feel ashamed that you fell for it. I mean, the PR is out there in the ether that we breathe. Um, and, and this belief that, um, that, that every adoption is rescuing a quote unquote unwanted child is horrifying when the reality is if there were all these unwanted children why do we read articles every day about women crying over being duped and, and coerced and, and pressured into giving up their baby? The article that I wrote in 2015, and there was another article just very, very recently that came across my desk um, in California, an almost identical case where the, the um, expectant mother went online in both cases contacted the first thing that popped up as an adoption agency, and all it was was attorneys making arrangements and promising that they were going to counsel these expectant mothers in both cases, in the current one in California and the one in 2015 in Alabama, in both cases, these mothers were, the expectant mothers were told, oh, you can ask for expenses. That, that, you know, the judge is going to approve your expenses. And both of them said, well, you know, I don't have that many expenses, um, maybe a couple of maternity outfits, um, uh, you know, maybe some bus fare to get to doctors. Oh, no, no, no. They were both told these are wealthy adoptive parents. Ask for more. They were encouraged to ask for more money so that in the end, they could hold them over the barrel and say, oh, well, if you change your mind, you're going to have to pay back all these thousands of dollars. So, um, but the public, despite all of this, the public is, wants to believe the myth that adoption rescues unwanted babies. Where are all these unwanted babies? And if there were, why are these agencies having to lie to and twist the arms of and, and bribe them with money to get their babies and then blackmail them to get, why would that have to be done if there were all these unwanted babies? Where are they? We don't have orphanages here in the US. We have foster care, yes. Those are not babies. Those are not the ones that, that the uh, prospective adopters are seeking. Those are older children, sibling groups, children with physical or emotional disabilities. There are 36 couples competing for each newborn baby that is relinquished for adoption. There's your supply, oh. there's your supply and demand statistic. 36 couples for each newborn relinquished in the U.S. Where are all these unwanted babies that are being rescued? Um, they don't exist. And yet the public continues to believe the myths. You know, it's like in politics when, when lies are spewed out and people believe them. It's like conspiracy theories. Why do people believe conspiracy theories? Who know? But people just believe it. It's not true. And then the truth is thwarted. I told you what happened when I submitted my first book to Simon and Schuster. And by the way, correction, it was Simon, not Schuster, who read it. You know, I told you what he said. People don't want to believe the, the abuse that happens in, in adoptive homes or any of this not, coercion. They don't want to believe it. They want... And, and one of the big reasons is because the infertility and the same-sex couples want so desperately to have a baby. When you want something desperately enough, you're very willing to do like the monkeys do, you know, no see, no hear, you know, uh, right, exactly. Oh, exactly. yeah. Put on the blinders and put in the earplugs. I want what I want when I want it. And um, and I'm entitled to it. I, I feel entitled. I know I will be a good parent. Therefore, I feel entitled to have a baby. And I don't want to hear what's wrong with the adoption industry. I, and, and I don't want to hear that I'm not rescuing a baby and doing a good deed. 
Um, and, and that's, yeah, it's, it's too hard. Yeah. It's too hard to look at the truth mirror. I mean, it. yeah. Adoptees such as yourself who come out of the fog and start speaking out are immediately labeled bitter, disgruntled adoptees. You know, we're whistleblowers. What do they say about any whistleblower? Oh, he was just a disgruntled employee. And they say that about adoptees and birth parents who are the true experts on adoption. We live it. And yet they don't want to listen to what we have to say. Oh, and the adoptees get the extra added phrase that I love, and I'm sure you'll love it. You're ungrateful if you speak out anything, if you say one negative word, not about your own personal situation, but just about adoption in general, you're then ungrateful because adoptees are supposed to be grateful for being rescued. There's a wonderful quote, and of course, my head for detail won't let me think of who said it. Um, I can send it to you afterward. There's a wonderful quote that. Um, Adoptees are the only people in the world that are expected to be grateful for having suffered a loss of their entire family. Think about it. Why should you be grateful? You know, it's like an an arsonist burning down your house and then saying, be grateful that the fire department came and put the fire out. Uh, No. My house burned down and I lost everything I owned. So yes, I'm grateful I'm still alive, but uh, no, I'm not so grateful that I lost everything. And adoptees are asked, not asked, they're not asked, it's just done to them. Um, They lose everything. And then they're supposed to be grateful for the substitute that steps in and quote, rescues them. It's all so bizarre. It's just all so bizarre. That's what I think gets me the most. Um, Yeah, it's necessary to fill a demand and for people to make money doing that. Um, But is it ever in the child's best interest? That's the real question. Now, pro-adoptionists, which, you know, the people in the field making the money will assure you It's absolutely in a child's best interest. And they'll talk about the horrors of orphanages and the horrors of foster care. But again, those are not the children that people are seeking to adopt. Um, So let's, you know, let's be realistic about this. We're talking about domestic infant adoption. Um, Is it in any infant's best interest to be separated from all of the sight all of the sounds and smells and rhythm of their mother's womb. Um, is that not traumatic? No matter how early in life, you know, there's another, another um, myth that if we adopt early enough, the child will have no memories and therefore everything, you know, there's no trauma. Um, it's been proven over and over and over in neurological professional journal articles that these babies suffer a neurological primal wound, neurological trauma, and it lasts a lifetime. So that's number one to consider when considering what's in a child's best interest. Um, In in my, my firm, firm radical belief is that all supports should be provided for expectant mothers and families in crisis, um, whatever they, whatever it takes to help them keep their families together. You know, there is um, there is substance abuse rehab that takes in families. It's few and far between, and we need to have far more of it. You know, mothers that already have a child. Um, or or are expecting one any moment, there are facilities that will take the mother and the the newborn and her other children even into care. What about foster families for such families? You know, there's ways to provide, um, if we cared to as a society, 
there are ways to provide these support systems and prevent these traumatic separations. Um, and then after that, after we exhaust all of those means, um, extended family absolutely needs to be researched. Um, again, it does happen, but way too rarely. There's an organization called Family Finders that works with um, uh, adolescents aging out of foster care. And it is amazing the number of extended family members that can be found when you look for them and try, and which should have been done at the onset when these kids first went into foster care, not at the end when they're aging out, but it, it, it goes to show there are family members out there who often will say, oh my gosh, no, I never knew that my sister had a child that spent his life in foster care. I certainly would have taken this child or grandparents who are willing to step up to the plate. And again, we need to put some financial resources behind this. Grandparents are stepping up. Often they're being fought by prospective adopters and often they'll lose to prospective adopters, um, but they're not being given the funds that stranger foster parents are given. Foster parents in every state get state subsidies. But if a grandparent wants to raise her child, not so much. There's something really, really wrong with <sighs> laws regarding childcare in this country. I mean, we know that we don't put any uh, funding into actual childcare you know, affordable child care for single mothers. We don't put much funding into that. And we don't put any funding into supporting and shoring up these families that for the most part are dealing with a temporary crisis. Here's an example. I housed an expectant mother. Um, she contacted me she was at the agency about to sign the papers and someone turned her on to me, gave her my name and she contacted me. I drove to the agency, I picked her up. Um, she was thin, except for being pregnant, um, but you know, you could tell by her arms, and the rest. she was a, a thin, tall, tall, thin woman, but hunched over with her head down in, in what I saw as utter sadness and helplessness and hopelessness. And I got her to my house and I said to her, what do you want to do? And with her head still down in her chest, she said, well, I really have to give this baby away. I said, no, 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 sweetie. I didn't ask you what you think you have to do. I asked you what you want to do. Because that was never a question asked of me or most of us. Um, I said, what do you want to do? And she said through her tears, well, I want to keep my baby, but I don't have a place to stay. I don't, I don't know how I would do that. I said, well, unpack your suitcase because you've got a place to stay now. And that's all it took. That's all it took. I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm not a wealthy person, you know? Um, what I did was I had two sons who had separate bedrooms and I doubled them up. One of their bedrooms had a bunk bed. And I said, Matthew, you're moving into Adam's room temporarily. Matthew said, oh, okay, mom, why? Because we're gonna help this. Oh, okay, mom, that's cool. That's a good thing to do, you know? Um, I was not in, in, in a wealthy situation by any means, but what did it cost to stretch a dinner for one more plate? We were a family of five and I fed a sixth person, you know? Um, it, it, it's not a lot to help someone out. And, and I often think um, if someone's next door neighbor, if their house burnt down, all right, you'd probably offer them temporary shelter or ask what you could do. You'd, you'd replace items that were burnt in the fire. Would you go next door and say, well, let me take your baby 
and raise your baby so you can get on with your life and rebuild your house. No, no, people don't say that when it's their next door neighbor. But that's what we're doing as a society. We're taking people that are going through temporary crises and instead of giving them a hand up and helping them resolve that crisis and whatever temporary help they need, we're taking advantage of, of their them being in this critical position, in this vulnerable position. They're being totally exploited and a permanent solution being put on a temporary problem. Oh, Mira. A permanent solution that's neither in their best interest or in the best interest of their child. Because why should their child grow up not knowing them and not knowing their family medical history and all of that simply because they went through some hard times? Now, this young woman stayed with me until her baby was born and just very few months afterward. And sure as heck, what happened was once the baby was born and her mother saw the baby, her mother came around like you have. And her mother took her back in, even though her mother had kicked her out when she was pregnant. It doesn't take a, a lot of money and it doesn't take a lifetime to help someone. It's a very time limited process to help someone get through a, 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 a troubled time. And all yeah. we do is become a more moral, compassionate, caring society. And But because of the demand, we see these women in crises as, aha, aha, let's get our greedy little hands. Here's, here's a possibility that we can have another baby to sell to some rich person who's willing to pay tens of thousands of dollars for each baby. They're, they're seen as, as, as an opportunity. Oh, Mira, so the way that you stated all that, it just, I literally feel like I'm in an emotional boxing ring because this is just, I mean, the strikes to the gut here, everything you're saying, and just the simple act of you asking that mother in crisis, that question. After asking her that question and realizing it wasn't until the words came out of my mouth that I realized that's all I would have needed done for me to prevent what no one ever asked me, not my parents, not any social worker. No one ever asked, what do you want to do? And that's a simple, and, and you saw her head go from being buried in her chest, all of a sudden her chin lifted and she looked me in the eyes with this look of, are you kidding me? Someone cares what I think. (laughs) Someone cares what I think. And of course I want to keep my baby. Of course. I mean, her eyes just lit up, but then she went back down and said, but I can't because I don't have, I said, well, now you do, you have, and it was like her whole world changed in just those moments. And I was a basket case crying. Oh, Mira, I, I mean, I, I'm crying and I wasn't even there just hearing about it. So Mira, a couple of other things. I just have to go there. So I think about this could be part of the myth too. I think a lot of people, as you stated, are still trapped in that mindset that the mother is in crisis, gives up the baby, the mother can get on with her life, the baby gets on with their life, the adopted family gets on with their life. But I think that what people need to know is this is a life sentence. And I don't want to speak for you, but I can speak for myself to say that now that I'm aware of what happened, I understand that the suffering that I endured it, it is probably going to be there until my last breath. I think there can be a lot of healing but these aren't things you just get over or you just get on with it. I'm sure there are some cases where, um, you know, we have, we have extremes. People are people, like you said in the last episode, we do have human beings. And just because you give birth to a child doesn't mean you're going to be an exemplary parent. Let's face it. 
there's a lot of, excuse my French, shitty stuff that happens to kids by their own blood's hands. So we can't just say, well, they're all wonderful and great and everything. But what I think I hear you saying, Mira, is that the solutions are based in, if you have a mother in crisis, whatever that reason may be, the first step is to provide support to that mother to see if we can't get out of that situation. If she's unable, then who else close? It's almost like this, um, like you throw a pebble in the water and you go to this and this and this. And then we have the extreme choice, which would be whatever that is. Um, I, I just am trying to sort out in my mind how to think about this. Where am I at with that, Mira? What do I need to well, know? <laughs> I think you're 100% on target. And the extreme outer ripple effect of that that you were describing, the extreme is placing the child with strangers. And that should be an absolute last resort. After all other methods of first keeping this family intact are are sought and tried out and then extended family contacted. And after all that is exhausted, then stranger adoption should be considered, but not really, but not really, not necessarily, not adoption as we know it. Um, first, I want to say one other thing. I agree with you totally that um, uh, the act of giving birth does not make one automatically a totally fit mother. We know for a fact from adoptees who have initiated searches, we know for a fact, and I will never deny it, adoptees have found mothers who have literally dumped five, six, a dozen kids, don't even remember where or when they gave birth. Um, this so I am by no means saying that every mother that gives birth should keep her child and is going to make a safe home for that child. There are defective human beings. There are people who will not take any help that's given them in terms of substance abuse. Yeah. And there are people with intractable mental illness. Um, and now we don't even have resources for those people either. Um, they're, they're left to wander the streets in big cities um, and, and live on the streets. But no, not every mother, because she's she's by by virtue of the fact that she gives birth. Absolutely. I'm not saying that by any means. Um, but stranger placement should be a last resort. The child deserves to know and be with any kin that he can. Kinship care should be mm. more prevalent. Um, family preservation should be a primary goal. Kinship care should be a secondary goal. And then when all of that is exhausted, now comes my bottom line, radical insanity. Okay, I'm going to do a drum roll. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, okay Mara, we're ready. <laughs> um, when all of that is exhausted and a child needs to be raised, by unrelated strangers. It doesn't have to be an adoption that severs that child's entire past. It can be done through permanent legal guardianship. Um, PLG, permanent legal guardianship. It affords the guardians, the parents of the child, the new parents, it affords them every um, decision-making ability they have all the ability to make medical decisions, educational decisions in that child's best interest, but it doesn't sever the child's past and eradicate it and erase it like it doesn't exist. Um, the Hawaiians had a word for it. It's hi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's H-A-N-A-I. I don't know. H-A-N-A-I. Um, and it's also called simple adoption. And it's practiced in um, um, Muslim countries. They practice simple adoption. Um, it, it, and you know, when you think about it, prior to the 1940s, when the records became sealed in this country, look back to the days of um, Little House on the Prairie, okay? That era of our American history, it was commonly known that the Jones boy is being raised by the Smiths. 
because the Jones boy's mother died in childbirth or their farm burned down or whatever crisis happened and the child was left uh, orphaned or with one parent who couldn't care for him. Um, it was just open and it, it was usually done through the church, through the parish. They would reach out and, and ask if there's anybody who needs an extra pair of hands in their family. Um, but it was open and above board. You know, he was born to the Smiths. He's raised by the Jones. The Joneses love him as their own. Um, they treat him like a son. But they don't have to change his name to do that because the whole name changing thing and the sealing and the lies, the sealing of the original birth certificate, which leads to the issuance of a falsified birth certificate, um, which is state committed fraud and identity theft. That's it's, you know, adoption is legalized kidnapping and legalized identity theft. It's all of that. Um, um, where was I? <laughs> I well, we were just no, but we were talking about simple adoption being yes. that that outside of the ripples. <laughs> that that would be a solution that's cleaner. In other words, the adoptee, it shouldn't adoption shouldn't be a trade off. That yes, you'll get care, but you have to give up your, your ties to all of your family and your kin and your medical history. Why does it have to be a trade-off? Why can't it be truly, truly open, not the open adoption we call today, because that starts with a relinquishment of rights. No, you don't need the relinquishment of rights. You can do it through guardianship, um, kinship. There are ways to do this that are more humane for the that put the adoptive child's needs and rights first above all others, not the right of the adoptive parents to, to feel an entitlement and a possession of this child. I want this child to be mine, so it has to carry on my family name. No, it's not about that. It's about caring for the child. Yeah, it's all so distorted, Mira. And if you if you have um, a little more in, yeah, I'd like to ask you a couple more questions because yeah. I really think I want to touch on this issue of the adopted parents because, you know, selfishly, I, I feel the most upset for the adoptees because I feel like we're the most vulnerable. And then I lean to into the birth mothers because, you know, I, I feel like I have, and I'm admitting this, like a degree of sympathy, which is, is showing my character perhaps. So sorry about that. But, you know, I do feel for adoptive couples because I, I remember experiencing three years of infertility and it totally sucked. It was horrible. I always wanted to be a mother. There were so many things that were difficult about it. And at the time I was a teacher and I would see these kids coming that were abused by their parents and why can't I have a baby? And, you know, you touched on all of that, but, but I wonder what advice can you, can you offer people in that situation that are, that are also vulnerable in their own unique way to some of the coercive practices that are going on Mira? Like what, what hope is it maybe adopting kids that are in the foster system. I don't know. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Yeah. Um, I'm very, very sympathetic to that. Um, I, unfortunately, it's not my lived experience. I can't say I know what it's like to want to have a child and not be able to. I can't say that that would be a lie and it would be insulting. Um, I do understand, though, how painful wanting a child and not being able to is, but, and a lot of people are not going to like hearing this. A generation or two ago, people just accepted that and lived with it. They found other ways. They became big brothers and big sisters. They had nieces and nephews. I mean, a couple of generations ago, there wasn't all of this IVF um, that there is today, people that were infertile. It was cruel. I mean, but look, people also accept losing limbs and becoming blind. 
and and hardships happen to people. Infertility is a medical issue. It needs to be resolved medically, not through a social uh, program of taking children away from somebody else. It's just not it's not the right solution for the problem. It's just creating problems for other people. You know, um, yeah, we have organ donation programs, you know, um, but would you expect somebody to die to give you an organ? No. Would you expect somebody to cut off an arm to give it to you because you lost your arm in, in, in some kind of a horrific accident? No, we don't expect that. Um, but yet we expect women to carry a baby for nine months and give it away because there are other people that really, really want a baby and they want a newborn baby. They don't want to take the children who are available for adoption because those are considered damaged goods. Hard truth, Mira, but the, you know, the truth needs to be told. And, I've and been, when I've written this, Excuse me for interrupting, Heidi, but when no, I no, please do. I've had this discussion on social media. I've had adoptive parents come back at me and say to me, "Well, what makes you think that adoptive parents owe it to society to take these children from foster care any more than anyone else?" Well, duh, because you're looking to have to to, to create a family which is a wonderful thing. It's admirable that you want a family. My heart goes out to you. I understand that. But these are the children that need placing. Take a, you know, there's something like, um, God, again, statistics. Um, I think the figure is 300,000 children in foster care um, who could, who, who cannot be reunited with their family for whatever reason. Their families never rehabilitated themselves enough and didn't um, do everything they needed to do to get the child back. There are something like 300,000 of those children out there. You want to be a parent. You're desperate to be a parent. You know, you may have to accept the reality that you're going to miss some of the parental experience. You know, you, you may not, you, you won't be able to experience pregnancy and childbirth. You may also not be able to experience parenting the child from infancy on, but you still can be a parent and fill your, your need, have a family and do something good for society in, in, in doing so instead of destroying another family to create yours. I mean, thank you, Mira. I, I know these are not easy it's, conversations it's hard, to have. It's hard yeah. for the public to accept. It's hard for the public to accept because all of the sympathy is on those people, everyone, either themselves or knows someone close to them, a close friend, a coworker, or a member of their family. There's not a person in America who doesn't know someone who already has adopted or is desperately trying to. And that's where all the sympathy goes. Oh, my cousin's sister's mother-in-law is desperate to have a child. And I know she'd be such a good mother. And like you said, when you were experiencing it, then you see babies being abandoned in garbage cans. And you say, why is that happening when my cousin would make such a good mother and so wants to be a mother? So all of the sympathy is on the wannabe perspective adopters. And now, as I said, included in that pool are same-sex couples. We also now feel extended empathy for them wanting to be parents as well. You know, again, a couple of generations ago, not that long ago, when somebody um, was by no choice of their own, um, attracted to the same sex, they kind of accepted that it came along with, they probably weren't going to have a family. It just is what it is. And it was accepted, but you know, it's like, I don't know, a very 
ugly, but, but, you know, we keep talking about adoptees are commodities. So, you know, if you went into a shoe store and there was only one shoe available in your size, you take it. Um, when you go into a store and there's thousands of colors and designs, you know, the more choices you have, the more confusing it gets. And the more you think, oh my gosh, you know, there's all these choices out there. But the interesting thing too, is that um, infertile couples who are very out in public now on social media about their um, fertility journeys and how they suffer through um, very painful and very expensive fertility treatments. It's very, very clear that adoption is their last resort. They're not adopting out of um, altruism or, or uh, no, and yet they're looked at as being noble when it was their last choice, when they jumped through every hoop they could jump through and spent every penny available to them. And only then when they couldn't afford more treatments or they didn't want to endure the pain of more infertility treatments, only then did they resolve to, well, I guess we're at the end of our rope and now we'll adopt. You know, knowing that you're a second, third or fourth option I mean, but that's not good, not good, Mira. Reality, we have to accept that that's the reality. These people aren't doing it to be noble. They're not doing it to help children or to help society. Yeah, it is. It is a hard truth to accept as an adoptee, because a lot of times I know in my case, and I'm 55, I was told that I was chosen and I was special. And Mira, I swear to God, up until about eight months ago, I wore that crown. Like, I'm like, I'm special. <laughs> and to realize, okay, well, hmm, guess not. And not to diminish because even after all the hell I've been through, Mira, I would not trade like having my grandmother and, and my adopted mom and, and all the things that happened in my life. But to have that reality sink in, and I actually think they believed it too, at some level, you know, I don't think they went into it thinking this is my second or third choice. I don't know. I don't want to assume, but, but it's really interesting how you said when you had something, those blinders go on and you, and a lot of the things that you might, or you should be looking at kind of fall away. And I think that that these episodes with you have been a real reality check. And I, and I want to say that in my next life, if I am half as creative as you, it, it, it's just amazing to me, Mira, because you have probably had to take some pretty tough hits to speak your truth. And, and it hasn't swayed you. You have oh. kept going. And, and I just want to say thank you because for me, I mean, my heart's just pounding thinking about these things, but somebody has to say it and get it out there. I'm glad. I just want you to know that I'm still so honored to know you, Mira, through what's this experience you know, with you. What's horrifying to me, Heidi, is that I've been saying this since 1988 and so little has changed. Yeah. Truth has been out there and not just from me. The truth has been out there no. and, and it, it's just ignored. It's just swept under the carpet and um, and they just continue. Be, as long as there's a market, there's going to be, as long as there's a demand, there's going to be people wanting to make money to fill that demand. And I, I don't know any other solution to this problem. We have wow, to Mira. get to the root of it and, and really put effort into infertility prevention and education about all of this. I have to mention the fact that in addition to um, trying to stop what's wrong with adoption, I also fight to end surrogacy. It's illegal in most of the world. It's allowed. You know that there are people coming now from all over all other parts of the world come to America to have surrogates because it's legal here and it's illegal in most. And why is it illegal in most of the world? Because it's buying and selling human beings. So it's illegal, but we allow it here in America because we are the land of capitalism. 
you know, so I'm opposed to, um, in, in addition to adoption um, and all those lies, any um, third party anonymous reproduction is reprehensible to me and should be outlawed because it's creating a child that um, doesn't have access to either 50 or 100% of their genetics. And, and to me, that's that's just um, inhumane to create a child with that, that, that with his truth destroyed like that for him or her. Well, Mira, as we wrap up, I just, I'd like you to, to try to explain to me maybe what this has cost you in terms of just your emotional well-being, <laughs> you know, relinquishing your, your beautiful daughter, having that whole experience. You know, I think people need to understand very clearly the, the reality and maybe to end with some encouraging words to maybe some adoptees out there who are struggling so deeply with with all of this confusion and madness well for me the activism that i've done has been my healing and that's the only thing that has helped um i used the example in, in the previous episode about the mothers that created um mothers against drunk driving and the mothers that created the amber alerts um that when you lose a child, the only thing you can do besides lose your own mind and sit and cry for the rest of your life um, is try and do something to change it so it doesn't happen to others. Um, and, and that's what keeps me going and put one foot in front of the other. But it's been 53 years. Um, I certainly by no means have forgotten. It certainly has not gotten any less painful. Um, and it doesn't, you know, anyone who's lost a loved one knows that um, the cliche time heals all wounds is absolute bullshit. Um, I liken um, these losses by adoption and death. It, it's, um, it becomes like a chronic illness which I have, and I can make the analogy very clearly. In most chronic illnesses, they ebb and flow. You have periods of remission and periods of flare up. And that's how it is with the death of a loved one or the limbo loss of someone to adoption. Um, there's gonna be uh, triggers like anniversaries, the anniversary of their birth, the anniversary of their relinquishment um, are very big triggers. Um, and most of the time, I'm a fully functioning human being and I'm not crippled by my grief, but I by no means am over my grief isn't something that you ever get over. You go through it and you deal with it and you cope with it. But it comes back and hits you in the ass from time to time. And the only thing that I have found, and I do tell this to adoptees and to mothers, the only thing I have found that helps is activism, fighting back, because I'm, I have to be strong. I have to fight. I don't just, because it takes me from victim to survivor. If I wasn't fighting, I would be a perpetual victim crying in my beer. And I refuse to be that. I refuse to let it destroy me. It destroyed my daughter. Adoption totally, fully, 100% destroyed my daughter. And I'm not going to let it destroy me. I will fight till my last breath and hopefully make some tiny little inroads in this crazy thing called adoption. I talked about the ripple effect. And I also want yes. to say that it doesn't just affect the adoptee and the mother or the, and or the father of the child. It affects every relationship the adoptee has, as you know. Yep. Adoptees are, it's very difficult for them to trust and, and, and form good, healthy relationships. Um, and for the birth mothers and birth fathers, it affects us and all of our extended family. Our parents lost a grandchild. My sister lost a niece. Um, 
And my children, my three children lost a sister. There are ripples. There are many, many people hurt and affected by this. This is not a one-on-one that, you know, oh, the birth mother, you know, uh, she was unfit and deserves what happened to her, or she made a good decision and, and we, you know, we honor her and respect her. But it, it affects everyone else in your life. I made a decision that affected my parents' ability to be grandparents and, and my children's right to have their sibling. So, um, you know, it hurts a lot of people. And, and, and all we like to look at as a society as the good parts of it. We totally want to put on rose-colored glasses and look how wonderful this is. It's not all that wonderful. At best, it's a trade-off. And it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off the adoptee doesn't have any choice about. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging that, Mira, because I uh, I think that that is a really big deal. It know? is. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. And- and it affects your ability to trust when, when choices and decisions have made for you and, and about you that you had no say in the matter. It's very difficult to trust again after that. And, and, and when you have such a deep-seated feeling of abandonment and, and, and um, rejection, I mean, every adoptee lives with that as their foundation of course, it's going to be difficult to form relationships. And when you're told that you have to be grateful on top of it, when you're living with these feelings of rejection and abandonment, and then you're supposed to be grateful, it's crazy making. I mean, that's totally gaslighting. Yeah, Mira, and I have to say that you, I think I mentioned this in our other episode, but it was your article. Yeah. I literally came out of the fog reading your article in my bedroom. And I don't think I've cried or made noises like that <laughs> for the grief that I, I just have to thank you, even though it's been a difficult process to go through your truth, your honesty, your revelations, and holding these conversations. Once we can clear the path and see the truth, I really believe that's when that healing can start to happen. You know, that dismantling of the lies. And, and as we build back up and we have these conversations where we say, oh, my God, I'm not crazy. It's okay to feel this way. Perhaps we can kind of restructure that, that group doesn't kick us in the ass every two seconds. It's maybe perhaps we can become more functional. Like you, you know, just being able to, through some sort of meaning, uh, be able to deal with this very everything that exists and I just I'm having a hard time explaining how important you are to me but hopefully that (laughs) at least gave a little bit and and I have a feeling these conversations are going to provide those moments for a lot of people that haven't really considered considered all of this yet Um, so I just want to say thank you Mira for all of the energy you put forth to do these two episodes Thank you so much for allowing me to share this and hopefully it will make another dent. We just could make little dents here and there and that's all we can do and hope that eventually change comes about. That's all we can do, Mira. Just keep it on. <laughs> keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on. Keep on keeping on.